Romans 3, 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much um, for who you are, for how great you are, um, and that even though we are so broken and so undeserving, um, that you love us and you rescued us, God. Um, we just thank you so much for that grace, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Hello, everybody. Um, how's it going? It's dark. We'll, we'll change the romantic mood here in just a second. Um, so my name is Derek. For those of you that I haven't met, if I have met you, my name is still Derek. It's just it's more catered to those new folks. Um, I am one of the pastors here, and, and one of my uh, great pleasures is that when Kevin is gone doing Kevin things or um, we bench him for a while like we do over the summer, then I get to step up and, and preach a little bit, and I really love doing that. Um, and so uh, I'm going to take us through Romans 3, 9 through 20 this morning, um, and, and know that I am not a classically trained preacher. I didn't, like, go to seminary, and so if, if in this morning's sermon I say something that makes you kind of cock your head to the side and say sorry, or go, like, wow, that's uh, not right, then understand this, um, what you are hearing is a more likely a flawed preacher than a flawed word of God. So um, always, any church you go to, any pastor you hear, no matter how great their celebrity, no matter how big their congregation, if you go and you hear them say something that contradicts the word of God, you take the word of God over the word of the preacher, right? Uh, not to say that a preacher might not say something that is challenging to your understanding of doctrine and theology, um, and, and maybe we'll have a moment of that today, but um, just want to say that as we get started. Now, at the end of this sermon, if I haven't met you, um, or you want to come up and yell at me, or ask me questions, or just say hi, um, I will be around. I'm told that I'm only allowed to do that for a few minutes today, because my son needs a nap. Um, he fell asleep watching Star Wars this morning after we gave him a bath, so um, I might be trying to rush out of here. Um, so this morning is kind of a big deal in the life of the church. Does anybody know why? Ken and Sam are not allowed to answer, neither is Nate. What, why? What? Josh is muttering out 500th year of the Reformation. That's right. So 500 years ago, uh, on October 31st, the Reformation began. Now, I'm going to assume that we all have the same level of information about the Reformation. That is, 
very little. Um, not as an insult, but I want to start at the bottom and build our way up. So what happened in the Reformation? Well, if you remember when we started our... Did I just break it? I broke it. I broke it. I'm sorry. We're good. Um, so when Kevin started us off in Romans, he said that Romans is a really important work in the life of the church for a few reasons, and one of those he listed was that it was central to forming Martin Luther's approach to the Reformation. Um, so what is the Reformation, and why does it matter? Um, well, Romans 3, actually, where we're going to be today, where we started last week, um, where we're going to be next week, played a really central role in this overall. Um, it was in reading Romans 3 that Martin Luther began to see that there was need for reform within the Roman Catholic Church. And at a young age, Luther devoted his life to God as a monk. Um, the story goes that he was in uh, this really terrible thunderstorm, and he did that thing that we do when we're young and scared, and we go, God, if I survive this, my life is yours. So he overcommitted, and then followed through with it, right? He gets into his early 20s, he survived the storm clearly, and became a monk in Germany. And the understanding at that time in the church was that in order to become saved, in order to maintain your salvation, you had to uh, adhere to the sacraments, right? So it's not just the communion and baptism and things that are outlined in the scriptures, but additional things, right? There are more things that you had to do. Um, you had to um, do good works. And if you couldn't do either one of those things because you were too important or you liked your life too much but you still wanted to be saved, you could purchase indulgences, which was literally you would go to the church and you would give them money to continue living your lifestyle that you wanted to lead because you were buying out of the bank of, uh, of holy merit, basically. You were borrowing from the, the holiness of saints or people who had gone before you who were too holy. They were so holy, in fact, they had excess and you could purchase that. And so with this mentality, understanding that you could earn your salvation, the monk Martin Luther goes about his monastic life. And he has this really interesting struggle in his heart where as he's devoting his life to God, he gets more and more angry at God because he feels like no matter what he does, he's just not good enough. It's like God's playing this game of keep away. Like, here's the salvation. If you can jump here, I'll give it to you. Oh, you jump there. Now let's go up here, right? He just felt like it was being held back from him. And so he goes to this um, godly man who was mentoring him, and he says, oh gosh, here's, here's what I'm struggling. And the, and the monk above him says, well, why don't you study the Word of God? Just devote yourself to the study of the Word and distract yourself from this frustration. So that's what Martin Luther does. And as he's distracting himself, he comes across Romans 3, and he reads this passage. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so this stood in direct contradiction to what the church was teaching, to what the Pope was leading, and to what all of the priests were repeating, that you could earn your salvation, yet here in the Word of God it says, no, no, all have sinned, all have fallen short. No one is good, no one is righteous, no one earns their salvation that is given by God. 
And so Martin Luther sees this disconnect and goes, aha, that's why I'm so angry at God, because I, I feel like I'm supposed to be earning something from him, and that's not the way it works at all. And so he began this work, really, he wasn't trying to split the church. The church has already experienced a couple of splits at this time. He wanted to reform it. He wanted to fix it. He wanted to go to them and say, look, brothers, this is what it actually says about our salvation. This is what we should preach. This is the glory of God. And they said, no. <laughs> um, not because he was saying that faith was granted and not earned. They had heard that before. St. Augustine had said that generations before. Particularly what condemned Martin Luther was that he said, and furthermore, this act of selling the right to continue to sin is absolutely opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, as a corrupt institution does, when their source of income, wealth, and influence is challenged, they started hunting him down. And so they call him before this council, the Diet of Worms, and the, uh, the, the King Charles, a holy Roman emperor, goes before uh, this council and he says, you need to answer for this pile of works. Recant it and be saved, or uh, stand by it and we're going to probably execute you. But probably not, wink, we're going to execute you. And, and what Martin Luther says is, look, there's, there's three different kinds of works here. There are those that have to do with the teaching of salvation. There are those that have to do with the practice of the church. And both of those I stand by completely. But then there are these works that are against individuals, like the Pope or individual priests or bishops. And, and those, I might have been a bit too harsh. If you know Martin Luther, he wasn't a bit too harsh. Maybe he was absolutely too harsh. Um, and he says, I apologize for the tone, but I stand by my charges. And that was it. He was gone right? Um, so he had to go into exile. Um, by the grace of God, there were some princes, some nobility in that room who heard his defense, who heard his charges against the church, and said, this makes sense to us. We're going to support this guy. And so they took him and hit him, and, and from there the Reformation exploded. Out of the Reformation, we get a few things, right? How many of you right now have a Bible, that you can read. This is, this is basically the same quiz that Kevin gave a few weeks ago, so I knew the answer. Um, how many of you can actually read your Bible? It's in the language that you speak, that you can understand, that you can repeat to others. Everybody, right? That is because of the Reformation. At the time of the Reformation, it was a capital offense to have a copy of the scriptures in anything other than Latin, which meant only the nobles only the well-educated, only the rich, only the professional clergy could read and interpret the word of God. Does that sound a little wrong? Yeah, right? Because the Bible says, keep the word on your heart, on your lips, on your mind. As you're coming and going, as you rise and as you sleep, think about the word of God. It's central to our lives. And the church at this time was saying, no, 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 let us handle that for you. Right? It's like if I got up here and I said, uh, now I'm not a very well-trained preacher, but ignore everything your Bible says. Listen to me because I'm the one with the Britney mic. Right? Every one of you would be like, that's ridiculous. The reason you think that's ridiculous is because of the Reformation. The other thing that came out of the Reformation that, um, that we live by in this church, if you guys have ever heard, we are a Reformed church. Um, here's what that means. We hold to the five solas. Uh, sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Christus, Sola Dea Gloria, which translates to 
Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. The Scriptures alone represent God's counsel regarding salvation, which is received by faith alone, given through grace alone, purchased by Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. You were not saved so that you as an individual could be held up as more important, more special, more this, more that. It was not for your own good in and of itself, although yes, we reap a benefit of that in that we are, we are saved from the wrath of God. More so, our salvation is saving us towards something, and that is to go about our lives in a way that glorifies our God and Savior. These ideas were corrupted by the church in Martin Luther's day, and he stood up and said, this is wrong. And so because of the Reformation, because 500 years ago this happened, we now have uh, access to the Word of God. We now have the ability to ponder the truth of Scripture in a way that we didn't 500 years ago, and it is so vitally important in the life of our church. And so there's so much more to be said about the Reformation. So many more people who were involved in it beyond Martin Luther and King Charles. And so I would just encourage you this week, go online, find out, uh, find some resources. The, the Gospel Coalition has some. Uh, Desiring God Ministries from, uh, from John Piper have plenty. Uh, there's a podcast that I highly recommend called Communio Sanctorum that gives like little 15 to 20 minute segments of focusing. Those are my children, uh, or my kid and their kids. Um, that, that give you a 20-minute segment of um, history along this. I, I really appreciate that podcast. So go and look into this because understanding why we do things the way we do them matters. Understanding why we refer to ourselves as reformed matters. And so go and study up on the history of the church you are a part of, okay? Um, so all that being said, let's talk about Romans 3 a little bit. Um, we're going to be in Romans 3, 9 through 20, and there are three things that I want to look at. Shocking, I know. Um, specifically, what's really great about this passage is this is the end of Paul's indictment against humanity, what we would refer to as establishing the doctrine of total depravity. He has said that everyone is guilty, everyone is deserving of God's wrath. I'm going to continue to talk about that a little bit. My Lord, what more can be said about it? Um, but towards the end, we're going to begin to see a hint, a glimmer of hope that's going to rescue us from the hopelessness um, of our state apart from God. And so the three things. First, I want to show you how the Bible views people. I want to reinforce this. Um, I've heard it called the egalitarianism of sin, um, meaning that all are equal in this category. Um, second, I want to spend a bit of time, a good bit of time, talking about something called the doctrine of election. Um, and then Third, I want to explore the source, symptoms, and impact of our sin. And, and then throughout the topic, throughout the conversation this morning, um, I want to kind of look at the solution, right? I want to keep pointing towards the solution as we're talking about this, because if we don't talk about the solution to the problem that Paul's giving us, then it becomes a bit depressing and a little bit of a doldrum. So let's make sure we take care of that. So what we have here in Romans 3, 9 through 20 is a summary of Paul's charges against humanity that began back in chapter 1, verse 18. That's how long it takes him to establish that um, you, are, you have a filthy black soul, right? Um, 
<clears throat> I think it's crucial to notice something about how Paul phrases his question in verse 9. This is not insignificant. Let's look at verse 9. He says, what then? Not that question, the other one. Are we Jews any better off? His answer, of course, is no, but, but look at what Paul is doing. He is counting himself among the self-righteous, hypocritical Jews who are guilty of sin and deserving of God's wrath that he's been railing against for a chapter and a half. He doesn't say, are you Jews any better off? Are we Jews any better off? And if you remember anything about Paul, remember that He's, he's not just writing to the church in Rome as an apostle of Christ's church, right? He's not just writing to the Jews as someone who is outside their sect. He was also one of the more gifted members of the Pharisee party. What do we know about Pharisees? Well, they helped kill Jesus, and then after he resurrected, they went on an open campaign of murdering his followers, men, women, and children alike, and Paul was one of those who would take papers into a town, arrest people, try to get them to recant Jesus, and if they didn't, he would have them stoned. In fact, you can see a story of that in, uh, in Acts, right before Paul's conversion. He has a follower of Christ stoned, and then on his way out of that, that's where he's struck blind, and Jesus is like, yo, cut it out. Why are you persecuting me? So if anyone could have laid claim to righteousness by obedience— which is what he's been lambasting, this idea of, to the Jews, it was Paul. He was a, a Pharisee among Pharisees, but he doesn't. Then on top of that, Paul proceeds to repeat for the, I don't know, third or fourth time in three chapters, <coughs> this claim that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, therefore deserving of God's wrath. So let, let's put this into proper um, historical context for us. Um, what is true of this time socially? In Paul's day, in first century Rome, um, there is a rigid division of classes, right? Um, not only do you have this strata between the upper echelon and the slaves at the bottom, but it's legally enforced. Yet yeah, there's some upward mobility. Yes, slaves could earn their freedom and could even become wealthy, could become scholars, could, could be called on by nobility. But there was always a stigma attached to their having been a slave. It was never like, hey, congratulations, you were a slave. It was like, oh, you were a slave. Well, keep your distance, but I, I still want you to do some things for me, right? A PBS article on social order on the first century of Rome says this, the social structure of ancient Rome was based on heredity, property, wealth, citizenship, and freedom. It was also based around men. Women were defined by the social status of their fathers and husbands. Women were expected to look after the houses, and very few had any real independence, and the boundaries between the different classes were strict and legally enforced. Members of different classes even dressed differently. Now, if I were to take that and, and tell you that that was a description of 2017, we'd probably be like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. Right? I don't know about the legally enforced bit, but um, there's absolutely division among the classes. There's absolutely a sense of where you come from might make you better than someone who came from somewhere else, or um, what you have, right, your wealth might make you better than someone else, or um, what your pedigree is, your property, right? 
So the contemporary culture around the church in Rome reinforced this idea that some were better than others. And in this context, Paul is writing this, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. There is no comparison, not even for an apostle hand-selected by Jesus Christ whose Jewish pedigree was as pure as they come. And I've said this many times in my community group this semester, um, probably so much that they're going to roll their eyes as they hear me say it yet again. But um, one of the most important things about the book of Romans, I think, is that it, it provides us with so many key foundational components of a biblical worldview, and this is one of them. That there is no distinction among mankind before God. He doesn't look at it and say, well, you had a conscience as a non-believer that you followed perfectly, therefore you're fine. Or you as a Christian perfectly upheld my morals and my, my law and you were perfectly obedient to my word, therefore you are saved. The only distinction that God makes among humanity is are you in Christ and his righteousness, or are you not? That is the only distinction. What does that mean for us? It, it means that we have no right to insist on artificial divisions. There is to be no barrier raised between humanity and God except for the blockade of sin that separates us already. There is to be no litmus test applied except whether or not Christ is in us. This fundamentally challenges the cultural context of Paul's day, and it fundamentally challenges our own. As Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. Rome didn't invent class divisions. Jews didn't invent self-righteousness, and Gentiles didn't invent debauchery. These things are natural byproducts of the root of sin that shoots into our souls. And that's what Paul has been trying to communicate for the last three chapters. And it is fundamentally important that we not only understand this egalitarianism that I'm talking about, but also that this is true of us. That if it were not for Christ in us, this would be our natural bend. And still we feel the pull, don't we? Even if we call ourselves a Christian. Paul summarizes his argument in verses 10 through 18 by borrowing from the Old Testament. More than a summary, he's calling to our attention the state of humanity under sin and the impact sin has on ourselves and others. And so he says, starting in verse 10, as it is written, so I, I'm not saying this, right? This is already in the text you believe. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now if I had to guess... Many of, you would, uh, many of you would have a question that probably focuses primarily on verses 11 and 12 of this passage, right? Um, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. 
No one does good, not even one. Now hold on, you might be thinking. Um, I came to God. I walked down the aisle. I uh, said a prayer, and I do plenty of good. Or, or maybe you're not as focused on yourself. Maybe you're thinking about people in general, and you're saying, well, I know some pretty charitable and humble people around the world who have a, a really positive impact on their community or their world around them. What about them? Those are, are fair questions. Uh, so let's talk about those for a second, since I asked. Um, first and foremost, we have to address this idea that no one seeks God. Because uh, as we think about the source of sin, here, here it is. No one seeks God. This is true, and let me explain why. So let's set aside for a moment, just for a moment, let's set aside the fact that this is true because of what the Bible has to say on the matter. And let's consider the reason behind the act of seeking. Right? So we've all heard that, like, oh yeah, they're seeking. Or it's a seeker. Or it's a seeker-friendly church. All right, let's talk about what they're seeking. I'm going to use myself for a narrow example, and then I'm going to draft this out uh, more broadly, I think. So when I was in high school and early college, I wrestled extensively with the question of whether or not God existed. I, th- I thought I was pretty sure he did, but I wasn't quite satisfied with the reasons that I had been given. I wasn't quite certain of my own thinking around that subject. So I started to ask, if I really believe this, do I really believe this? Right? If I'm going to say that I believe this, do I really believe this? Um, specifically, I wrestled with this question of what if God existed? Meaning, if God exists, if I believe God exists, then what else must be true? And I started applying it to all of these different scenarios. What, what was I looking for as I studied philosophy, as I read other religious texts, as I talked to friends who weren't Christian or, or were pagan? Like, I had friends who were Wiccans, and I, I don't know why. It was a small town, and there were like three of them, and they were all in band with me, and they were weird. And we would talk to them, and I talked to Buddhists, and I read Eastern spiritual traditions, looking for what, what would be true if God is true. What was I looking for? Was I looking for God? Well, no, of course not. I, I was looking for solace. I wanted comfort. Um, I wanted the questions in my heart to find an answer. And in his mercy, God used those questions and the pain of the experience that led me to ask him in the first place to bring me into his grace. So, like, I'm out here fumbling through the dark, and God's like, no, I got you. Like, come here, let me, let me show you the answer to these questions. I don't know exactly when that happened, but I can tell you without a doubt that I didn't start looking for God at all. At no point in that, as I think about it now, at no point was I going, man, I really hope I have an encounter with the divine. It was my selfishness that was driving me to seek. I wanted the comfort. I wanted the answers. I wanted the knowledge. I wanted to be satisfied. But notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that no one is seeking spirituality. No, one's, no one is looking to be in touch with their, uh, their eternal side, right? Um, he doesn't say that no one is seeking comfort. He doesn't say that no one is seeking answers. Paul says no one seeks God. Why would they, right? God doesn't promise an easy life. He doesn't say, come to me and I will take away your suffering. What he says is, come to me all who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. But rest from what? Rest from what? I will give you rest from the burden 
of sin. I will give you rest from the burden of seeking your salvation, of earning your salvation. I will give you that rest. There's still going to be difficulty. There's still going to be troubles. But now you have me, right? Think back to um, when we went through Habakkuk late this summer. Habakkuk is, is going off this, on this tantrum against God and he's hurting. And what gives him comfort? It's not God coming in and saying, I'm not going to allow this suffering to happen anymore. He rejoices that he has God. The same with Job. Job's entire family and life is destroyed. And in the end, he's not happy and praising God because God gave him that stuff back. That doesn't come until after he's praising God. What, praise, what makes him praise God is that God showed up and said, yes, you're suffering and you're hurting, but you have me. And he found his comfort. In the process of providing us this rest, God wants something from us, Right? He doesn't need something from us. He wants something from us. He wants our all. He wants our heart, our soul, our body, our mind. He wants our strength all devoted to him and his glory and his kingdom. None of us want to give up their autonomy, right? Are you kidding me? In, in this Western culture, in, in like today's society, we're, like how many people are lining up going, yeah, I want other people to control my life. It's the exact opposite. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me how to think. I'm an individual. My decisions matter. My life matters more than yours. My actions matter to me, and they're, it's all relative. You can't tell me how to live my life because what's good for me might not be good for you and vice versa. Nobody wants to give up their autonomy, and yet that's what God says is going to happen. So nobody is seeking God because in the act of gaining God, we lose control of ourselves. Doesn't Jesus say that he who seeks his life will lose it, but he who loses his life will find it everlasting? Now to those who are saved in this room, I'll ask you, when in your life did you really start to desire to give up control of your life and get more of God? Was it before or after the point you think you were saved? For me, there's no question. It was absolutely after that point where I began to see like these other things that were providing me comfort, these other things that I sought and desired suddenly begin to pale in comparison and value and worth to me seeking and knowing God and honoring him in my life and giving up things, risking things on a daily basis that are essential because I know what God's word says to be true of me, to be true of him, and to be true of my mission as a believer. None of that mattered until after I had God after he saved me. But why? Why did it happen in the first place? If I wasn't seeking God, and then all of a sudden it happened, how did it happen? It wasn't because I found him, right? He wasn't hiding. He wasn't lost. God met me in my seeking. He sought me. I don't need scripture to tell me that this is true. I lived it. When I was his and he was mine, I began seeking and craving more of him and not before. So if you're still twitching in your seat over this idea a little bit, let's, let's jump back into scripture for some support to this idea. Look at what Jesus himself says in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then he continues this line of logic. 
in verses 63 and 65. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are in spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the very beginning that those who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So now that I've opened this whole can of worms, it's my one pun for the sermon and nobody got it. I'll explain it later if you're curious. Um, <clears throat> we're we're going to be here for a minute, is the point. Um, so in all seriousness, this, this is a weighty and sometimes controversial doctrine called the doctrine of election. Um, it's grounded in passages like this and is found throughout the scriptures that tell us that we're unable to resolve this rift between us and God on our own, right? So that's the, that's the root of it. You bring in the doctrine of total depravity, that we are hopelessly broken, that we cannot hold our own standard, that we cannot earn it, we can't be obedient enough, we cannot get to God on our own. The counter to total depravity is this doctrine of election. That's what Paul's entire point has been up to this point, is that you can't get there. Here's another passage from uh, what's perhaps my favorite book of the New Testament, the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is a rich text. If you've never read it, just go, like, whatever you're reading now, stop and go read that, not literally right this second, but go start reading through Ephesians. There's so much there. Here's what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you who were dead in trespasses of sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience. Like, those are all active words. You are following something that was not God. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might know the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just as Jesus said in John 6, 63, the flesh does not bring life, it brings death. And Paul says here that that all are dead in trespasses against God's throne and sins against him while we're in the flesh. We are dead when we are in the flesh. And so I I was wrestling through this concept of the doctrine of election when I was in college, and and this friend of mine, also named Paul, oddly enough, um, would just ask me. He would say, what can a dead person do? And then I would say something sarcastic and witty. No, no, no. 
But Derek, what, what can a dead person do? If you were dead in your trespasses, if you were dead in the flesh, if you were spiritually underground, six feet under, what can you do? Nothing but follow the spirit of the age, right? Are you a morally and ethically upstanding individual? Then great, I praise God for the fiber of your character, but your soul is not saved because of these things. Therefore, if you're a Christian, you're not to boast in anything but the mercy of our God. But how quickly does our flesh, twisted by sin, say to us, I am not like them and insert whatever definition for that division you want to think of. I am not like them. I don't party every weekend. I'm not like them. I didn't go to FSU. I am not like them. I didn't, like, whatever, right? We find all kinds of ways to prop ourselves up and make ourselves feel better. That is the constant pull of your sinful flesh. May it never be said of us as disciples of Jesus Christ that we elevate ourselves over someone else for any reason. When, when we see sin, when we see wrong, we must, we must absolutely call it out. We speak truth in love. But may we never forget that it is only by the grace of God that we were saved. Not because we count ourselves among his children, right? Like it didn't happen where we go, I'm a Christian, and God goes, all right. It was reversed, right? Like God saves us, and then we go, praise God. I'm saved by his grace through faith that he granted me, not because I earned it. May we never, never forget what Paul says here. Among whom you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy, raised us up together with him. The objection to this doctrine is, is invariably some form of, but I chose to accept the free gift of grace. So let's talk about that. This argument against election is usually based in some way on support for free will, right? We would say, well, God gave us the ability to choose, and so I used that ability to respond to the evidence that he had given me. Um, and God's pretty wise, so he likes to give us evidence that that argument is not true, um, that, that it's flawed at a certain point. Because again, what does Paul say in Ephesians? He doesn't say that like we were following these things and trying to figure out how to get to God. No, we were following blindly after our sinful desires. We're following after the spirit of this age. We were just like everything Paul has said in Romans 1.18 through 3.20. Well, I guess 3.18. Um, so God tests this in the Old Testament. So in the book of Jeremiah, I've been reading through that for what feels like ever. Um, God comes to the prophet Jeremiah and he says, I want you to take this message to the people of Judah and Israel. I want you to tell them that because of their sin, right? Because in this time, they're sacrificing children in the temple of God and all kinds of other terrible, terrible things happening. They've completely left God. God comes to Jeremiah and says, I want you to tell these people that because of their sin, because they have strayed so far away from me, because they are not keeping my laws, they are not honoring me, they are not seeking me as their God, I'm going to punish them. And I'm going to punish them by bringing Babylon in to not just hurt them, but to destroy their city. I'm going to, I'm going to raise their city, I'm going to disband the people, put them into all these different nations, and I'm going to turn them into slaves again. The very thing that I saved them from. And God says, 
But I want you to also tell them that if they will repent, I'll relent. It, I want you to tell them that if they apologize, if they, if they bear their souls before me in sackcloth and ashes and tell me that they are sorry, I'm paraphrasing, then, then we're done. I will bring them back. It's going to be just like it was before. And so Jeremiah says, okay. So he takes this message out. He goes to the king and the nobles, the elders of, of Judah, and he gives them that message and says, hey, God's going to destroy Judah, but don't worry. He said if you repent and start following his word again, then he'll relent from the destruction. You know what they did? They didn't go, oh, praise God, we've been given another chance. They said, you're wrong, and they tried to kill him 15 different ways. They beat him senseless, left him in a ditch. They put him in a cauldron and locked it up. They were going to light it on fire. They kidnapped him and took him to Egypt so that he couldn't keep saying those, these prophecies. The message was given, if you choose to turn away from your sin, you're fine. And they couldn't do it. When we understand that, um, that what... What sin does to us, it does in every fiber of our being. Like, yes, we have, we can make choices. Like, I can walk left or I can walk right. Um, those are my binary choices up here because I don't want to walk forward and off the stage. Um, yes, yeah, sure. But the high-level functions of thinking are radically uh, affected by sin. Our free will is constrained by the ability to choose what is wrong, what is sinful, what is not good and pleasing to the Lord. When we understand that it's God who grants salvation, a couple of things happen. First, we're utterly unable to boast about our qualifications. So if salvation is a gift from the Father, purchased on our behalf through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and sustained by the Spirit, then no one, regardless of the state of their salvation, is better or worse. It's not a question of value. It's a question of salvation. The only thing keeping them from God's wrath was a gift, not merit. The only thing that keeps us as believers from God's wrath is a gift and not merit. Second, we begin to better understand what Paul says in Romans 3.12. So look at that verse once more. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. To see how this is better understood through the doctrine of election, we first have to ask the obvious question. How is it that no one does good when we can name countless examples of human acts of charity and kindness that have a measurably good impact on their neighbors? Glad you asked. Um, so let's be clear what Paul's saying here. Again, there, there's um, the obvious here that, that Jesus said no one is good but God, right? Like, a oh, good teacher. And he says, you call me good, but no one is good but God. So are you saying that I'm God, right? We know that. But again, let's set that aside for a second. Paul doesn't say that no one is generous. He doesn't say that no one is capable of being civil. He says good. The issue here is not one of impact, what happens, but one of impetus. Why are you doing it? Here's an extreme example. If you have an excess amount of money laying around, and everybody knows, um, first of all, buy more locks for your door. Um, you're going to find yourself suddenly popular. So philanthropic causes are going to ring your phone off the hook and they're going to try to woo you into parting with some of your wealth. And you're likely going to donate to those causes. Why? Well, here's a, a couple of reasons. 
Um, for one, you might feel pity for the cause that's called. It's for cancer research or scholarships for disadvantaged youth, and so you donate. Maybe it's because they offer to put your name on a building or a college for all time, and that excites you, so you donate. Maybe it's because you feel that you are obligated to be generous since you have so much and everyone else has so little by comparison, so you donate. In each of these three scenarios, you are positively impacting the world around you and people are going to sing your praises for your generosity. And yet Paul would say that none of them are good because none of them are motivated by, by anything other, or sorry, Paul would say that they're not good because they're motivated by something other than an undying adoration for your God. You're doing it for your glory. You're doing it to assuage your guilt. You're doing it so that you can fit into the philanthropic wealthy hierarchy. Hypothetical, right? Like, to be fair. Um, But you're doing it for yourself and not for God. But good acts are two things. First and foremost, they're driven by a love for God and a desire to have more of Him. Not to alleviate our contrived guilt, not to make ourselves great. Second, and this is the most important thing we can keep in mind, that truly good works have already been prepared for us, right? We just read that in Ephesians 2.10. They're not only waiting for us, but they're part of God's plan. Our, our good works as Christians, if we're stepping into what God has called us to do, we are falling into the order of redemption and reconciliation that's being worked out through the church in Christ's absence that will be completed when he returns. When we truly understand these ideas in verses 11 and 12, that no one seeks God for God's sake and that no one is actually doing good in a spiritual sense, then verses 13 through 17 fall into place and we see the symptoms and the impact of sin. Verses 11 and 12 depict the source, right? So they've talked about what it looks like, what the rebellion against God looks like. Um, from the act of rebellion flow the symptoms, right? So verses 3 through 17, let's look at those, or 13 through 17, let's look at those again. Their throats are an open grave, which is, you know, convenient because Halloween. Um, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. So the impact of our rebellion against God doesn't stop at causing a disconnect between us and God, right? We've talked about this before. That's the vertical impact of sin. But it goes beyond the vertical impact. It has, it has every much a horizontal impact as it does vertical. Sin impacts our relationships with all of creation, whether we're talking about people or nature, right? Um, I heard a, a pastor say in a sermon once, he's like, when you're walking through the forest and uh, an animal is trying to attack you and kill you, it's because it knows. It's your fault. You are the reason that creation sucks, right? Um, so there's enmity between man and there's enmity between man and creation, right? I mean, think about it. We all have, most of us in this room, like we went to school and then we went to more school and then we went to more school. We subjected ourselves to this so that we could then go to work and work and work and work to try and save up money so that we can maybe retire, so that we can maybe take some vacations. Like we are working ourselves to the bone to death, literally. Like they keep bumping the retirement age higher and higher and higher. Like I'm going to be, the moment of my retirement is when they lay me in the casket. 
That's what's gonna happen because of the enmity between me and creation. Because God said that, yeah, you're supposed to work, but now because of sin, it's gonna be difficult. It's gonna hurt. It's gonna work against you. How often, how often, how often do we, sometimes I talk Southern, um, how often do we find ourselves like shocked and appalled by sin? Like shocked and appalled by, by the, the, um, the capacity of human beings to hurt and kill and maim one another, to be selfish, to wage war, to, um, to lie, to steal. I'm not just talking about, right, like when I talk about our capacity for evil, I'm not just talking about waging war and the immoral things or like liking the prequels. Um, We have individual and collective impacts of sin and we just sort of accept it. We accept the fact that like, okay, so cards on the table, everybody knows I am a, a little bit sarcastic. It's one of the reasons that I actually write, like if you look at this, this is actually written out. I don't do notes because if I do notes then, and I'm left to my own devices to say things, I say things that are a little uncouth or maybe mean or biting because the venom of asps is on my lips. My, my throat can be an open grave. And I will, as a, a, a father, a husband, a, a pastor of a church, a friend, a son, a brother, there are plenty of times where day to day, I don't even mean to. I just open my mouth and somebody gets hurt. People think that it's funny, like Derek's witty, but ask Caitlin how funny it is when we're having an argument and I spout something off without thinking. It's not very funny. It's very painful. And then we have a serious talk afterwards and I'm in the doghouse. Um, It's depressing to think how quickly I will employ my tongue to defend myself, right? When I know that I have done something wrong, I will stand my ground and defend it because I don't want to suffer the consequences of what I did wrong. And it's, it's crazy to me to think how, how, how active the struggle is to pull myself away from the precipice of selfishness and own my sin, own my failure. I have been in meetings with people at work where um, I have made a mistake at any point in my career and I have had to force myself to shut up because what I want to do is throw somebody else under the bus so they pay for my failure so that I can keep my job because I like my job. I like earning money. I like the things my money can get me. I don't want to jeopardize that or my reputation. And so I literally sometimes bite my tongue to keep from speaking. That's how powerful the drive is. We all experience this, I'm, I'm guessing, on, on some level. Maybe it's not your tongue. Maybe it's something else. But the, the f- your flesh, our flesh, our sin pushes us to do these things, to drive a wedge horizontally between us and others. We're programmed by sin to do this. And there, there are plenty of people who are like, hey, you know what? None of this would be the problem, Derek. Like, you wouldn't be a jerk sometimes if you would just think more about other people and the impact your actions have on them. I don't care. None of this would be a problem if, if humanity, like there wouldn't be any poor and hungry if we were just all really generous. I want my money. We are not the solution. 
we are the problem. And if you have been reading through in Romans and you're saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but then you're missing the point. The problem is here. The solution is here, right? I look like I just scored a touchdown. I don't actually know sports. I don't know if people do that anymore. Um, The problem is humanity, and that's what Paul is trying to get us to see here. If we find ourselves in the good graces of God, if we count ourselves among his people, then far be it from us to contradict Paul's argument by trying to force something that isn't already here. What do I mean? So, I mean, as Christians, we must hold fast to the Reformation's sola scriptura, right? So, beginning to come kind of full circle. The scriptures alone hold not only the explanation of our problem, sin, right, our disconnect from God, but also um, the solution to our problem. And here's where we turn the corner and start looking up. Sin is the problem. Jesus is the answer. God so desperately wanted you to know this, that he himself came to proclaim it to you. My son's storybook Bible says it like this, that God had this message of a never stopping, never giving up, never failing, always and forever love that he translated into every language, right? He translated into a person and sent that person to earth to preach that message to us. Everything God wanted to say in Jesus So part one of this this gospel message that we proclaim every Sunday is that we are in need of a solution because our problem is so hopeless left to our own devices. And yet, this message that Paul says is so powerful in Romans 1, 16 and 17, right? The power of God and salvation. There's a part two. The part two is, yes, you're awful, but God so let's finish up with the last two or three verses here in, uh, in our passage, Romans 3, 18 through 20. And I'm going to be brief in my, my final thoughts here. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. It's Paul's polite way of saying, shut up. For by, uh, sorry, And the whole world may be accountable to God, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what's our solution? My final point this morning is that um, this particular verse is hinting forward, right? Um, I've just read ahead, if you've read ahead just a few verses, um, you see where um, the pivotal verses from Martin Luther that I shared with you at the beginning, you know that we're about to switch gears into the second half of the gospel message. We firmly established uh, the doctrine of total depravity. We firmly established our guilt. And now we'll hear about the hope. Paul hints at this here, right? Um, He says that people on their own, of their own volition, do not fear God. God. So what does that mean? What does the phrase mean to fear God? When we find this phrase in the Old Testament, sure, it connotes some sense of like trepidation. Like literally, I am afraid right now. The Old Testament authors, the prophets, recognized that God was perfectly holy and they were perfectly not. So to encounter the Almighty could easily result in your end, 
Right, so think about um, when Isaiah and his men are, are transporting the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark had the Ten Commandments, and the Israelites are carrying it around the desert. And um, they carry it on poles that would go through rings on the side of the box. And they were instructed, never touch this because the holiness of God is on this box. And they're traveling on what I guess was some rocky terrain, and it starts to slip. One of the men fall, the railing comes down, and the Ark begins to fall. And Isaiah, or Uzzah, Uzzah, is trying to stop it. Like, he's, he's being a good Jew. He's like, I don't want this to touch the ground. It's holy. And he touched it and died. Or you can think of when Isaiah meets God in the temple. What does he say? He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's fear. That is a proper fear. I am not worthy. I'm going to die. <laughs> but it's more than fear of one's life. It's a deep reverence, a sincere appreciation, and perhaps most importantly, acknowledgement of humanity's rightful place before God. Look at the use of this phrase elsewhere in the Psalms. Psalms 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 130, 3-4 reads, If you, O Lord, Kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are to be feared. So clearly, fear of the Lord is more than self-interest. It's more than, I am undone. It goes beyond that, and it acknowledges that the Lord is the source of our salvation. The, the source of, like, name a spiritual question you have, God's the answer. Name a problem that you face, God is the answer, right? Like, that's the solution. Paul makes this somewhat quixotic statement in verses 19 and 20. So put this in the context of the preceding chapter. So, so think about verses 19 and 20 on the basis of everything he's just said in chapter 3. Paul is saying that to emphasize the point that we're all guilty, God gave some the law. So now we have these two divisions, right? We have people with the law. We have people without the law. And so Paul says in Romans 1, 18 on to chapter 2 that uh, look at these Gentiles who don't have the law. They condemn themselves in these ways. But what about the Jews who have the law? Well, now that they have the law, now they know what sin is. They know how to defeat it. They know how to be obedient. And they still can't do it. So when God steps into creation and says, here is my law, and he gives his people his law, it is everything about demonstrating sin. It is not about salvation. The law does not grant salvation. You see that time and time and time again. What God wants is faith. He wants our hearts. He wants us to recognize that even though we have the law, even though we know all 613 different ways we can be holy, we can't do it. And so even if God is stepping into creation and saying, this is what I need from you, and you can't do it, then what's, what's the result? Nobody can boast. Our mouths are shut. We can't turn to ourselves and say, look at how great and holy I am. Because we're still not getting it, even though we know what's in the Bible. Every mouth 
maybe you've stopped. To put it another way, God is inviting us to just hush. Stop talking about how great you are or how great your tradition is or how great your whatever is. Don't tell me how great your life is and therefore God must have blessed you. Don't tell me about how great your family is and and this is what makes me better. Instead, recognize that we are all the same, in the same broken condition, desperately in need of a Savior. And that's the really beautiful thing, guys. God knows this about you. He knows that you desperately need a Savior. He knows that I desperately need a Savior. He knows that my throat is an open grave, that my tongue is full of the venom of asps. He knows that I have not known the way of peace. He knows every dark secret about me, every wayward thought that flies through my mind in the middle of the day. He knows every time I get angry at someone who refuses to drive 55 miles an hour on Northwest 43rd Street past Publix Millhopper. He knows this. Hunter's Crossing. I know, I'm just And yet, God looked at me, he looked at us, and he said, they're worth it. I love you. In spite of our depravity, God still loves us. And to be fully known and fully loved is the greatest experience on the planet. There is no pretense. I... My wife knows everything about me. She knows every sin I've committed. She knows my shortcomings, my flaws. She knows my, uh, my, my mental thought process and how flawed it is and how self-seeking I can be sometimes. And she loves me. Not because I earned it, but because she chose to love me. She made a covenant to love me for the rest of my life. And that is what God is offering for us if we would know him, if we would fear him. He looks at our sin, he knows us, and he loves us. And that's why as he hung on the cross and he looks at us, he sees all of us, right? And Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, 11, that he was satisfied with you despite the cost, despite the pain, despite the suffering. There is nothing more redeeming or more sanctifying than that. Um, And we'll talk more about that next week. So let me pray. Father, I thank you for, um, for the great reformation, for the, the way it brought us to your word, completely reforming it. I thank you that because of the Reformation, we have the Bible in our language, that we have an understanding of where our faith comes from that is um, unmatched before that. God, I thank you for the truth in Romans. I pray that our hearts and minds would be opened by your Spirit, that our lives would be radically impacted by knowing where we have come from and what sets us apart, that it isn't us. It is nothing about us and everything about you so that we don't boast about us, but we boast about you and we proclaim your gospel and we seek to be a part of your work and not anything of our own. And God, I just pray for those of us here this morning that as we go about our week, 
um, as we go through classes and work and we come back for community group and we come back here next Sunday morning, that our lives would be lived for you, whatever the cost, because we know that it is worth it. Because you see us, you love us, you know us, and because you have sought us, we seek to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.